appreciate your attendance here this morning. It's good to see quite a few visitors here with us today, and I hope for all of us members and visitors alike, the time we spend here together as we worship the God of heaven will be uh, strengthening, uplifting, encouraging, edifying for us. And I hope we'll all leave here today wanting to go out into the world and follow Jesus just a bit more closely. That's really what we're talking about today. All of Danny's songs, I appreciate the ones that he chose this morning, direct our attention to Jesus. And that's what our lesson this morning is about and what indeed all of our lessons throughout this year will be about. Dr. E.V. Ryu was a world-renowned British classical scholar, publisher, and translator. He began the Penguin Classics series of books. You can still go buy those in Barnes & Noble. He began it in 1946 with his translation and publication of Homer's Odyssey. And then he served as the general editor of that series for the next quarter of a century. Well, not longer after he began that series, he began the translation of the four Gospels as part of a projected Penguin edition of the Bible. Now, at the time, Ryu was 60 years old. He had been an avowed agnostic all of his life. When his son learned of his effort, he said, quote, it will be interesting to see what father will make of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of father. He didn't have to wonder long. Within a year of that undertaking, Evie Ryu, lifelong agnostic, became a believer in Jesus and joined the Church of England. Now, that story is a remarkable testimony to the transformative power of God's Word. And we could look and find many stories like that. And it's with that in mind that we begin this new series of lessons, walking our way not through all four gospel accounts, but through just one gospel account, the gospel of Mark. Our sermons on Sunday morning this year, with a, a few inevitable breaks here and there along the way as the situation warrants, will all come from this text with those two questions really guiding us. What do we make of Mark's gospel? Or more specifically, what do we make of its subject? The Jesus whom Mark reveals. The powerful miracle worker. The master teacher. The suffering servant. The Christ. The son of man. The son of God. And then in response, what does this Jesus make of us? Will we accept his call to radical discipleship, to pick up our cross, and to follow him? This project of working our way, studying our way, preaching our way through a gospel has been on my mind for a number of years now. I've wanted to preach through Mark, but I've never quite worked up the courage to do it before. And I still don't really feel adequate to the task completely. 
because these are, are sermons. We're preaching here. This isn't a, a Bible class. So each lesson needs to be self-contained. It needs to have a pertinent point. It needs to have a practical application so that anyone who happens to come in off the street or be passing through this community into our assembly on any given Sunday morning can take something and profit from it. But at the same time, we want those of us who are here week in and week out to be able to see the bigger picture, to see how all of these little bits and pieces fit into the larger story and form a, a cohesive narrative. So how do we hold those two things together? It's going to be a work in progress because I've never undertaken anything like this before, and I know that there's probably going to be some growing pains as some things that I think might work in planning it out in advance maybe don't work so well as we get into it. Uh, we'll see, but I, I beg your, uh, your patience and your indulgence as we go through all this. But you may be asking yourself at this point why I think studying the gospel of Mark is so significant. That's the question we want to address this morning by way of introducing this series. Why study Mark's gospel? And we might back up a little bit even prior to asking that question. Why study any one gospel? Why spend our time preaching our way through one book, period, whatever it is? Well, for one thing, just on the most general level, I think that we can all benefit from more expository preaching. Topical sermons have their place, sure. But I think in general, we all need to read the word, study the word in context, be confronted by it, have it confront us and shape us. Now, most of my sermons, not all, but most of them already are expository. That is, we're looking at, at one text and interpreting it and trying to apply it. But even with that said, without some sort of control on that, there is a danger in neglecting parts of the Bible. So we might spend most of our time looking at scriptures that have to do with whatever the preacher's favorite topic is, his hobby horse. Everything might have to do with that. Or else all of our sermons, even if they're textual, it might be related to things going on in the church or current events or perhaps to the calendar. Or else maybe we'll focus only on favorite, well-known passages and parts of Scripture. We'll ignore those places that are more obscure. Maybe we'll focus only on those passages that are more straightforward and we'll ignore those that are controversial. All of this has the unintended consequence of neglecting parts of the Bible. And when we preach through a single book, we're forced to grapple with all of it, the clear and the obscure parts, maybe even the parts that we don't want to read and study about too much. It keeps us from becoming unbalanced. Secondly, Spending time in a single book also helps us to understand the unique contribution it makes to the whole of Scripture. Think about the Gospels, for example. Now, we're going to be in Mark's Gospel, of course, but we have a tendency to flatten out all of the Gospels. That is, we read them in conversation with one another, and so we read Matthew's meaning into Mark, and we read both of those into Luke, and so on and so forth. 
Now, in and of itself, there's not anything wrong with that. We should look at the parallel passages to help understand the meaning at times. I do that. I'm going to continue to do that in my own studies. I'll continue to do that in some of the lessons that we teach. It helps our comprehension, and the earliest Christians rightly believed that what we had in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not four different gospels, but rather it's one gospel simply from four different points of view. But what I'm suggesting is that sometimes, sometimes we would benefit from hearing those individual voices. We should appreciate the fact that a Of course, Mark is drawing on Old Testament scriptures at many places in his book. But Mark's original audience didn't have a a leather-bound New Testament with concordance and maps in the back and ribbon markers and the words of Jesus in red. When they read about Jesus, all his original audience had was his book. He was writing to a particular audience for a particular purpose, in a particular way. And I think we can benefit sometimes from trying to hear that independently. So as we go through this, we might make sidelong glances to Matthew and Luke at different points, but not that often. And even when we do, we're going to be doing it to try to see what Mark is not saying because we want to focus on Mark's message in particular. Not that there are conflicts in these accounts, that's not at all what I mean. But they tell the same story in unique ways. And I think sometimes those differences are important. Finally, I think we would all benefit to spend more time in the Gospels specifically. It seems to me that a lot of our preaching comes from the letters in the New Testament, from Paul in particular. And I'm as guilty of that is anyone. And part of the reason for that is it preaches really well. It's didactic. After all, what's Paul doing in his letters? Well, he's writing to Christians, and he's trying to instruct them. That's exactly what we're doing primarily when we're preaching in the assembly of the church, isn't it? I'm talking to Christians for the most part. I'm trying to instruct. We're trying to all learn and grow together here. So Paul's letters in particular naturally lend themselves to that. We look at the Gospels in contrast They're stories, and sometimes it can be a little bit harder. Sometimes it can be a lot harder to get the point that those stories are driving at, in particular when we're not looking at some of Jesus' teachings, his didactic materials, like we saw last week in that excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount. But what about when we're just reading about where Jesus went and what he did, his healing of someone or anything in general in his life? his death for that matter. If we are first and foremost followers of Jesus, then we need to be first and foremost shaped by his story. That's precisely what the gospels endeavor to do. They're designed to tell us the story of Jesus and to have us be shaped by it in response. We need to know it, we need to understand it, we need to take it into our lives, and then we need to go and live it out ourselves. That's what it means to be a disciple. So hopefully we see the importance of studying the gospel accounts in particular. Okay, I buy, we ought to preach through them. This is maybe going to be a good study. 
but why study Mark's gospel in particular? Well, for starters, Mark is arguably the most influential book that's ever been written. Modern scholars have done a lot of work on what they call the synoptic problem. That word synoptic refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. And it comes from a Greek word that just means that they see things the same way. You don't have to be a scholar or even to read too closely to recognize that there's a lot of parallels between Matthew and Mark and Luke's account. They all sound a lot alike. They all follow the same general format, and they're all pretty different from John. So the question is, what's the relationship between these three books? That's the synoptic problem. And most scholars believe that there must be some sort of literary dependence there, that one used the other or both used one or so on and so forth. And however we try to resolve that problem without getting too far bogged down in it, the general belief today is that Mark's gospel came first and that Matthew and Luke in one way or another used his in writing theirs. Now, sometimes people hear that and it bothers us because how does that fit in with our doctrine of inspiration? But that shouldn't bother us at all because we see all the time throughout the Bible where writers allude to using other works and writing their work. In fact, if you look at the beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he even says that he used other sources in writing his. Shouldn't bother us at all. God can guide inspiration through using other sources just as he can in any other way. We don't know exactly how that works. But more than likely, one of Luke's sources was Mark's gospel. And that means, if this is correct, that Mark has contributed immensely to our knowledge of Jesus, to the development of the New Testament, to the development of Christianity as a whole, and then as a consequence, when you get to the end of it, to all of Western history, in fact, all of world history. Mark, as I said, is maybe the most influential book ever written. And yet, despite that, it has been neglected by a lot of us. Going back even to the earliest days of the church, you know, I said that most modern scholars think Mark's gospel was first. In the ancient church, they believed that Mark actually wrote from Matthew's account, and he did little more than just abridge it. It's a sort of second-rate gospel to Matthew in the mind of many in the early church because Matthew was the favorite gospel of those early Christians. And so in contrast to all the commentaries written on Matthew, for instance, in the first thousand years of church history, we know of only two or three commentaries that were written on Mark. And in fact, only a few more were written between the year 1000 and the beginning of the Reformation in the 16th century. Even now, I suggest that it's probably the most least familiar gospel. If I were to go around a ro the room and we were forced to say, which one of the gospels is your favorite? I imagine most of us would name John or Matthew or Luke, anything but Mark. It doesn't have those big blocks of teaching like Matthew does. We think especially the Sermon on the Mount here. It doesn't have those unique parables the way Luke's gospel does, like the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. And of course, John's gospel stands apart with its own unique ring to it. So Mark is worthy of our study, at least in part, because we probably haven't ever studied it as we ought to begin with. 
But when we do, what we find is that Mark has some distinct features to commend it. First of all, Mark places a strong emphasis on discipleship. Now, we said that part of the reason that we would want to study the gospel accounts in the first place is so we can be formed as disciples of Jesus. Mark draws our attention to that theme in a way that the other gospels don't. In particular, he paints the disciples often in a negative light, a critical light, in a way that the other gospel accounts don't. Some have said that the disciples in Mark should be labeled the disciples because they just don't get it over and over again. He calls them hard-hearted on more than one occasion. They're squabbling over who should be greatest and most powerful in the kingdom of God repeatedly. They never seem to understand Jesus' predictions of his death. Ultimately, they fail in Gethsemane. They fail at his arrest. It culminates in Peter denying Jesus three times. But this isn't the end because if you go to the last chapter of Mark, chapter 16 and verse 7, after his resurrection, he says to go back and meet him again in Galilee. The faithfulness of Jesus overcomes that faithlessness of the 12. No failure is final for Jesus. And when we think about the author of this book, that emphasis makes sense. Mark is the same fellow we read about in the book of Acts who's known as John Mark. And the most famous story in Acts involving John Mark revolves around his abandonment of Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. When they were at Pergam Pamphylia, he got sick of it. He turned around, he went back home to Jerusalem. And in fact, that later caused a falling out between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas was a relative and he wanted to take John Mark on the second missionary journey and Paul said, no way, that guy, you can't trust him. Of course, if you read the rest of the New Testament, we know that ultimately, somehow or another, Paul and Mark were reconciled. And the very last letter Paul writes, the very last chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, when you come, bring Mark with you. He's profitable to me for ministry. There's a great story of someone who was faithless, but then was restored to usefulness in God's kingdom. And it makes even more sense when we consider that by tradition, Mark got the material for his gospel from Peter. The early church writes about this as Peter's memoirs that Mark essentially transcribed. And that makes sense because we read in Scripture that Peter's associated with Mark. In Acts chapter 12, for instance, after Peter's busted out of prison by an angel, he goes to the house of John Mark's mother. And if you read in 1 Peter chapter 5, a letter written towards the end of Peter's life, the very last chapter, Mark is mentioned as being there with him in Rome where he writes from. Well, think about how often Peter fails in his life of discipleship from turning on Jesus after he confesses that he's the Christ and Jesus says he needs to go and to suffer and to die and Peter says, that's not going to happen to you, Lord. Jesus rebukes him. He calls him Satan. Or denying him three times there on the night of his trial. Or even later, after he'd already become that great preacher on the day of Pentecost, when he's there in Antioch and some come up from James and try to say that Jews shouldn't be eating with Gentiles, he withdraws. And Paul says he has to withstand him to the face 
It's Galatians chapter 2. So the point of all this is, who would understand the failures of discipleship better than Peter or better than Mark? They knew what it meant to fail. And that's probably why we see so much candor here in Mark's gospel, because Peter's writing the unvarnished truth. He's remembering what he was like back then. And I suggest that all of that should be a source of tremendous encouragement to us whenever we inevitably fail. Jesus calls us to pick up the cross and to follow him in Mark. But we're reminded that he never abandons us, even when we stumble in that journey. But when we read through Mark, we also find that it's commended to us because it's just a good story. There is the vividness of his language that we don't find in the other gospel accounts. Mark doesn't write like, say, Luke. Luke writes in a really polished style. It imitates classical Greek. Mark writes in the common, everyday, ordinary vernacular, which is not to say it's ignorant or that it's sloppy, but if we compared Luke, for instance, to some sort of work of high literature, Mark is that, that page-turning novel, you know, the one that you pick up in the airport and you just read through there and you find that it's really compelling, it grips you. You get an indication of this when you compare some of the stories in, say, Matthew and Luke. You don't have to pay too close attention to realize that Matthew is obviously significantly longer than Mark is. And yet if you compare parallel stories, a miracle story, for instance, in Mark might be twice as long as the same story in Matthew. And that's because Mark writes about it in so much more vivid detail. He talks about the arrangement of groups of people that are waiting to be fed. He compares them to uh, vegetables growing on a patch of green grass in chapter 6. He talks in vivid detail about them tearing up the roof of the house to let that palsied man down in to see Jesus. He's the one who gives us the detail, the personal detail about Peter warming his hands by the fire along with the servants of the high priest at the palace. Put simply, Mark's gospel is just a good story. And it's one that is action-packed. There is constant movement in Mark's story. Some have compared it to a, a slideshow, that it's just one scene after another. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. You'll notice when we read through it that you find the word and frequently. That's how he often joins sentences. And this happened, and then this happened, and then this, and then this. It's almost breathless, moving from one scene to another. He frequently uses the word immediately. The Greek word translated immediately occurs 59 times in the New Testament. 41 of those 59 occurrences are in Mark. 11 of them are in the first chapter alone. So what we see is Jesus immediately did this, and then he immediately did that, and then he immediately went and did this. Mark's usually thought to have been written to a Roman audience and this is part of the reason that he wrote that way, because Romans were action-oriented. They wanted to see Jesus as this man of action. And I suggest we have a little bit in common with the Romans. That sort of thing should appeal to us as Americans. Maybe even more so in our modern age when we have ever-decreasing attention spans. Well, now we can see Jesus going here and there and then the other, one scene after another. There's a lot going on in Mark, and he tells it in an interesting fashion. 
I encourage you to just sit down and read this like you would any good story. What is this story all about? Well, that's ultimately the question we're going to be asking over this series of sermons. So you should come back next week and next week and the week after that and the week after that. There's a teaser if you want to really find out what it's about. But Mark gives us an indication in what it's about in chapter 1 and verse number 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You notice that there's no verb there? That's not a complete sentence. This is a fragment. These titles that we have, you know, I have the gospel according to Mark. I'm sure you do too. According to Mark, according to Matthew, according to Luke, those superscriptions are not part of the original text. They weren't placed there until the second century. So in other words, Mark intends this as a heading. This is the title of his work, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That gives us a preview of this story, of its contents, of its purpose, and I suggest that each one of those words is significant. Beginning. That should call to our minds as readers of the Bible, the beginning of the Bible itself. It's the way Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 begins, doesn't it? In the beginning. It's the way John's gospel begins too, for that matter. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But unlike John's gospel, Mark isn't trying to point us back to that pre-existent Word, the one who created all things back in Genesis chapter 1. Mark is instead pointing us to a new beginning, the beginning of some new activity of God. What's beginning here? It's the beginning of the gospel. Now, we use that word gospel today in at least a couple of different senses. One is for a, a genre, a type of literature. Mark's a gospel, Matthew's a gospel, John's a gospel. But that's not the sense in which Mark means it because that usage hadn't been invented yet. In fact, it's probably because Mark uses it here that that became the term for these biographies of Jesus, that they came to be known as gospels. Rather, he's telling us that what begins here is good news. It's glad tidings. That's what the word gospel literally means. We need to keep that in mind, that this story is good news, because sometimes it looks pretty bleak as we go through Mark. Mark's been described before as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. That is, everything here is leading relentlessly, inexorably to the cross. And if we get bogged down in that or look at it from a human point of view, that can seem dark, depressing, dismal. But in calling it good news, Mark reminds us that no matter how black it seems, however dark those clouds are that gather, there's always that light from above to cast a silver lining. This is good news. If we look deeper, if we look beyond the surface, that's what Mark asks us to do. That term is even more meaningful when we consider the way that it was used in the wider Greek and Roman world. 
In the Roman Empire, the death of an emperor was a time of extreme insecurity because there was a potential for instability. Is there going to be civil war? What's going to happen to the economy? Am I going to even be able to get food? And so when a new emperor was acclaimed, a herald would be sent out throughout all the empire, letting everyone know, we have an emperor. It's all going to be okay. There's going to be peace. There's going to be prosperity. There's going to be a chicken in every pot, two chariots in every garage, whatever. The term that was used for that was gospel. Good news, glad tidings. The same Greek word, when that herald went out, that was gospel. And in fact, our word for preacher is the word that was used for that herald. So in the wider world, the good news is that we have a new king. Well, you know what? That's the same thing as the good news in Scripture. It is for Mark, too. If you were to go down to verses 14 and 15 in chapter 1. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That good news has to do with a new king, the reign of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, Mark tells us that back in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the first time, but not the last time, we're going to have a phrase used with a double meaning in Mark. Because you see, you can take this of Jesus Christ in a couple of different ways in the Greek. It could be subjective or it could be objective. That is, is this the gospel that Jesus is preaching? Or is this the gospel that's about Jesus? Is he the proclaimer or is he the one who's proclaimed? And you might have a translation that chooses one or those other options. The gospel that's about Jesus Christ or the gospel that Jesus Christ proclaimed. We shouldn't try to narrow that down to one or the other because rightly understood, both meanings are contained in this phrase. Jesus is both the preacher of the gospel and Jesus is the one that this gospel is all about. We've already read that he went about preaching, telling people to repent, to believe the good news, to enter into that kingdom of God. But also, ultimately, he is the content of that good news, that in him, God's kingdom has come. Our familiarity with Jesus Christ, the good news is his. It's about him. He's bringing it. Our familiarity with Jesus Christ can blind us to the fact that that's not his full name. Now, Jesus is actually a significant name in and of itself. Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua. Now, that obviously should sound familiar because it's the name of one of the most important of God's people in the Old Testament. And obviously, that name was popular in the first century because of his namesake. There were lots of babies running around named Joshua or Jesus. But this isn't Jesus of Nazareth's name just because Mary sat down and Googled hottest baby names in the year 4 BC or whatever. It's because this is what God said to name him. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
The name Jesus, Joshua, means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh delivers. And of course, beyond that, if we think about Joshua in history, it reminds us of the one who ultimately brought his people into the promised land. The one who did what Moses failed to accomplish. But that second part, Christ, sometimes we use this, and you'll even see it jokingly used like it was a last name. First name Jesus, last name Christ. Well, Jesus wasn't born into the Christ family, Joseph Christ and his wife Mary and their son Jesus. Christ is a title. That's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. It literally means the anointed one. Now, that's a term that was used in the Old Testament for priests. It was used sometimes for prophets. It was used for kings. In one sense, there were many messiahs. But it came to be used ultimately for the Messiah, the anointed one. The one who would come and be that descendant of David who God would anoint as king, the one who would usher in that new reign, that new thing that he was going to do. He's not only the Christ, he is the Son of God, Mark says. On one level, we could understand that as just a synonym for Christ, because sometimes Son of God was applied to the King of Israel. If the Christ is the rightful King, sometimes Son of God was used to the King. God refers to Solomon as his son in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse number 14. In the second psalm, which was a song that was thought to be sung at the coronation of a new king of Israel, verse number 7, it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. But especially in a Gentile context, remember the Gospel of Mark's probably written to Romans. It's certainly written to Gentiles because Mark's constantly explaining Jewish laws and customs. In a Gentile context, Calling Jesus the Son of God effectively declares that he is divine, that he's deity. The Roman emperors in Jesus' day, Tiberius, Augustus, one of the titles they took for themselves was Son of God. That's part of their propaganda because, you see, their fathers had been declared to be gods. And so they ruled as living gods themselves. So when Jesus is called the Son of God, that title claims that he, not Caesar, is the true Son of God. He, not Caesar, is the rightful Lord of the earth. But it also declares that he, not Caesar, is divine. In a Roman context, this would raise all sorts of ideas about someone who could work powerful miracles, about someone who was human but who really was God. And in, interestingly, it is a Roman soldier who first declares in Mark from a human standpoint that Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 15 and verse 39. The point of all this is that Mark gives us the interpretive key to this entire book in this first verse, in the title. This story is all about Jesus, and it's the good news that he is the Messiah, the rightful king. He is the divine Son of God. Now, the rest of the book unpacks what that means because it defies expectations. He's not a king like the Jewish people expected, a conquering warlord. He's not a son of God in the way that Romans might have expected because ultimately all this leads not to a crown, but to a cross. The question is, what are we 
going to do about it? Will we confess that he is the son of God along with a centurion? Will we repent and believe the good news that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came, lived among us, walked and talked, ultimately died for us. But God has made him king. God has made him Lord of the entire world. Are we going to submit to him and come into that kingdom of God? And if you haven't done that today, I want to urge you to do it, to place your trust in Jesus, to turn to him in repentance as he himself called for, to be buried with him in the waters of baptism, rise up to be added to that kingdom of God, to become a subject of King Jesus to be adopted as sons of God yourselves, as Matthew read in our scripture reading just a few moments ago. But for those of us here who are Christians, and Mark was writing to an audience that probably largely already was Christians, the question is, how does this story shape us and form us? Will we be willing to pick up our cross and to follow him, come what may, even to death, if you haven't been following him as you ought, or if you've never begun to follow him at all, if you need to make changes in your life this morning, he calls to you now while we stand and while we sing. Hark the gentle voice of Jesus.